And welcome in. It's the Mostly Magic Podcast. Jake Chapman here with you. We're recording on November 1st. It's a Monday. Magic uh, two games down on this three-game road trip. It'll be the Minnesota Timberwolves tonight in Minnesota. Magic fell on Friday in Toronto, Saturday in Detroit as well. And then it's back home. We'll kick off a five-game homestand. That's Wednesday night at Amway Center against the Boston Celtics. My guest for the program this week, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to track him down. He is a frequent guest on this podcast. We call it the No Prep Pod whenever I have Dan Savage on uh, because he and I can usually just rip through about an hour's worth of content uh, without even getting prepared for it. I wanted to have him on because he is a Bengals fan. I am a Browns fan. And I assumed that both teams would be coming off wins yesterday and headed into a big week. Browns, Bengals for the top of the AFC North. Um, But of course, that is... Way too good to be true, both the Browns and Bengals. You should know better, Jake. You should know better. The second I got that text from you that this was going to happen on a Sunday before those games, I knew what was coming down the pipe. I don't even know necessarily what I was thinking, Dan. um, It serves me me right for assuming that the Browns would ever win a game, let alone the Bengals. And, of course, the Bengals-Jets, of course, it felt like that one was money in the bank, but it never is the case with the Browns and the Bengals. And of course we will get to that, but Dan, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to book you because you're like Mr. Viral sensation right now. We had the media day thing, you and Gary Harris, you come from a long line of savages, which was an outstanding line. Um, and, and, and that was, that's the Dan Savage that I know that sort of dry, throw it right back at you, uh, sort of wit, but now the photo, Dan, the new profile pick on Twitter with the sunglasses and the orange background. And you, of course, it coincided with the Magic dropping their Orange City Edition jerseys today. Um, very, very impressive stuff. You are a rock star, my friend. <laughs> well, uh, a few things that people have never said. One, rock star, and two, hard to track down. I'm usually the guest when other people in the company couldn't get, like, the real guest. They'll go with the fill-in, and, and that's when I get, uh, get some shine. <laughs> and uh, secondly, I just happened to be there on the day they were shooting the uh, city, you know, promos and, and doing all that, like the second secret media day where the, the regular media was locked out. And I was utilizing it as a time to get a one on one for a particular piece. And uh, Tony Wynn, one of the graphic designers, Love social Tony. graphic designers and, you know, really the, the rock star and in, in, uh, and sort of genius behind some of the Chuma Okiki sunglasses uh, elements saw it as an opportunity to take a photo of me in those. And then he sends me over the, the edited version. And I was just like, all right, I guess, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's uh, it's killer. I mean, it's because the sunglasses now are those, are those prop sunglasses or are those like actually expensive sunglasses you're wearing? And where are they? Or did they go back to Chuma? I have no idea if they're actually his prop, you know, $10,000 Gucci song. I have no clue. I put them on for all of like 10 seconds. Tony captured like three different photos and, and here we are. Well, I love it. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm not sure how you wouldn't, but Dan um, is our director of digital news. He's a writer covering the magic and magic gaming. Um, you have been, you're not on this trip. Josh is on this trip, but you went on the first one, right, Dan? You've been on the, on the, on the plane traveling with the team this year, like it's supposed to be. Correct. I did all of preseason, uh, did the road trip to New York and Miami and, uh, seemingly, I don't, I don't know how, how Josh pulled this over on me, but seemingly from the end of November through all of December, I think I'm on the road, 
uh, nonstop. He, he gave me no break. Uh, uh, yeah. How did that, how did that swing? Now? Okay. But I'll, I will say this, if you got to skip it, if there's a trip you don't necessarily want to be on Toronto, Detroit, Minneapolis, it's not a bad, it's not a bad trip to skip, especially three games in four days. I'm sure he's not necessarily enjoying himself right now. No, I mean, you know, and then I'm going to end up with the like, you know, three days in LA and, and like the, the California road trip, which, you know, in December is, is not, not the money. worst place to be in the world. So it's money. yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll kind of come out of it on that side with it, with a net positive. <laughs> what, um, what's it been like? I mean, is it, is there still a lot of restrictions? Is it somewhat back to normal being out on the road with the team? I mean, it's, um, it's, it, it can't be exactly how it used to be, but is it, is it somewhat close to, to what you recall? Yeah, close, close to what I recall. Um, you know, there's still some times where you have to go get tested in the morning randomly due to, due to N- NBA protocols and, and, you know, some other, you know, mask wearing on the plane and, and some other spots as you go through the hotel, et cetera. Uh, but overall to be back traveling with the team to actually get face-to-face time, you know, right. be close for interviews, huge difference because as doing these things, especially when you get called to go on a podcast or do an interview with somebody, it's like previously it'd be like, well, you guys heard the same thing on the zoom calls that, that I heard. There's no, there's nothing different. So now it's like, you could actually bring in some insight, uh, you know, establish some more relationships with different people, whether it's, you know, riding in the elevator or, you know, getting onto the plane or the bus, et cetera. Uh, it allows you to build a lot of that, which in a year where you have so many new players, so many young guys and new coaching staff is really invaluable. And I've always found based on my experience and based on people I've talked to who do travel with the team, um, like assistants and like members of the traveling party, you guys get very, very close with those guys. And especially, like you said, with the new coaching staff, there's a whole lot of good insight that comes out of, you know, Jesse Mermis and, and Nate Tibbetts and, and, and being able to talk one-on-one with those guys, whether it's in the lobby or on the plane or even at shooter on or at a game, um, you just gain so much more insight when you're, when you're able to pick those guys' brains. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing I find invaluable, especially at the start of this season, where we have so many rookies who are just coming out or other teams ha- have rookies is I'm sitting a lot. The, the place where I've been sitting a lot is right next to scouts from other teams. Right. And, you know, it's funny just because over the course of 14 years here, you know, 16 plus total in the NBA, uh, I've been able to establish a lot of relationships with a lot of people. So a lot of these guys are familiar faces and to gain insight from people outside of the organization of players on our team yes. or rookies on other teams is also uh, a good to know because I just feel like it's either confirmation that you're hearing the same thing that's being preached to you or, you know, you're hearing a different take and a, and a little bit of angle. It makes you think a little bit differently about things. So uh, it's been really interesting to start because a lot of the scouts takes that I heard, whether it be in summer league or preseason, um, a lot of them are coming to fruition uh, as, as the season starts, whether it be with players here or with other teams. It's uh, interesting you say that. It's a good transition because one of the pieces that I used to love the most that Josh Robbins used to write for The Athletic uh, were, were those. What do opposing yeah. scouts think of, of players and the Magic? Um, we lost Josh to the Washington Wizards beat. The Wizards beat Traitor. is better for it, and we, are, uh, and we are worse for it. But I just wanted your thoughts on Josh. Obviously, he's leaving – um, to, to go to his hometown. And for personal reasons, he wrote a beautiful piece in The Athletic. I would strongly advise you read it um, if you had. And I know Dan did. 
Um, Joshua is, Josh is a great writer and he was a really good resource for magic fans and for people like you and I as well, but he was also our buddy. He's a great guy. We're going to miss him a lot. No, I mean, without question, uh, Josh and I's relationship goes, you know, way back, especially, you know, when you're traveling and you're, you're on the road, uh, always was great when, whenever Josh would, uh, reluctantly, I could drag him out to a, to a lunch or something like that. Uh, and, and, you know, meet up with him or just playful banter in the media room. Uh, we both like to give each other a, a hard time. So it, it's just going to seem like so quiet and dry without him there. That's what I'm going to miss the most is just like text during games or sitting next to each other. And just, I mean, we just have so many random one-liners that we repeat to, to one another that wouldn't make any sense to anybody else, but to us, it could just crack us up. And especially, you know, going through some weird seasons, it's, it's always helped. So going to miss him a lot from that type of stuff. Uh, I helped him move a TV before he announced that uh, he was leaving. He had some like old TV from like, it was just like a monstrosity, like from like 1994, that probably has been in his apartment this entire time. And all of a sudden you want to get rid of it. And I was like, that's random. Like, you know, you're getting rid of it at this point. And I should have been the first indicator that he was moving. And I see if you were as good a reporter, if you were as good a reporter as Josh Robbins was, you would have been on the trail, but you, but but sorry, Dan, you're, you're I I almost put it together in my head, but not quite. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I should have, I should have, not helped him with that TV and maybe he wouldn't be able to take that job. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, uh, the, uh, the junk removal fee probably would have, would have been the hindrance there, but um, no, we're, we're all going to miss Josh. And the good thing is he's not going to Sacramento. He's going to Washington in division. So at least we get to see him twice a year down here and then uh, hopefully in Washington as well. Um, all right, let's talk about basketball to start to the season. It's, it's confounding to me, Dan. I mean, look, we, we know that the lineup is breaking when Jamal Mosley breaks the lineup, essentially. The starting five have been so good. I mean, you set the um, you set the limit on what's – I have it on 50 minutes of a group played, a five-man lineup, and you're talking about the best net rating in the league, Mo Bamba, Wendell Carter Jr., Cole Anthony, Franz Wagner, and Jalen Suggs, the second-best def- uh, defensive rating in the league, um, this group. And uh, – I'm sitting there going, okay, it doesn't make a whole bunch of sense to me why they can't sort of carry that over into wins. I realize the second unit is struggling right now, and Coach Mosley is really sort of, you know, trying everything he can with the rotations. We've seen now the last two games, Terrence Ross um, and Gary Harris, first two off the bench, and they're coming in together. Um, Might not have Gary Harris. Looks like he is questionable for tonight. He tweaked his ankle on Saturday. Um, but there's got to be a way, it seems, to, to transfer the success you're seeing with the starting five over uh, into the bench bunch, and you're just not seeing it right now. No, no question. And it's really bizarre when you like consider the fact that you know this is the youngest opening night lineup since the NBA has been tracking the age uh, of starting groups in 1970-71, and they're leading the league with the best net rating. And it actually even goes – even if you go further down past 50, it's still number one for, for quite a bit of while. So yeah. it, it's just crazy to me. And, uh, you know, I think it really speaks to the defense that Jalen Suggs and, and Franz Wagner are bringing night in and night out as rookies. Cause you would think 
hey, we're starting two rookies. Where's the first area you're going to hurt? It's on the defensive end. I mean, that's where young guys seem to struggle coming into this league. But when you look at it, like, you know, as of tonight, uh, you know, opponents are shooting 23.6% from three against Suggs, you know, with him as the closest defender and 26% against Franz. And when you consider the fact that they're both just 20 years old and this is their first go around seeing these guys, it's really mind blowing because usually with young guys, especially at the guard position where they really grow defensively is after they've gone through a full rotation of playing against some of the star caliber players where, you know what, all right, I'm seeing, uh, you know, Chris Paul for a second time. I know his moves, uh, you know, I'm going through and I know what Trey Young's going to do now, but these guys are doing it, you know, in their first go around through the league. And that is just, you know, amazing to me. And I think the other thing that's helping right now is you're seeing other guys take leaps and you look at Cole Anthony and he's just been so good shooting the basketball, especially from deep, you know, shooting over 40% from three um, and so good off the dribble. I think he's number one in the NBA right now in shooting threes off the dribble. So when you're getting that kind of production from him, Mo Bamba, who's been better, uh, it's no surprise that the starting group is doing better. I think what's so mind boggling is you think, OK, we're going to a bench unit and we've got some veterans coming in. It's going to at least hold weight, if not help. And, and as of right now, that something's disruptive with the chemistry there. It's not all quite fitting together. And that's going to be the challenge for Jamal Mosley. But I think, you know, he's got pieces slowly integrating back, starting with Chuma Okiki. So I would imagine that starts to get better as time goes on. Yeah, you would hope Chuma rectifies some of those issues or at least smooths them over um, a little bit. He played, what, 20 minutes? He's going to be on um, a minute's limit. You got to work him back in. And that's part of the thing, too, is as you get comfortable and work guys back in, sometimes that can disrupt, you know, yeah. whatever sort of comfort and chemistry you might have built. Um, but, yeah, let's go back to the rookies. I mean, you're right. Like, that's – to me, that's the obvious thing. And I do think the, the double big lineup, I mean, you've got pretty good rim protection and you've got – um, you got a couple towers down there that are protecting the rim and doing what they need to do. Wendell Carter Jr. It seems like can defend one, one through five at this point. He's just, I mean, you just sort of peel him off on anybody that versatility. Um, we know they want to switch screens if at all possible. And so having a guy like Wendell, um, and a guy like Franz who can just basically pick up anybody, um, has been huge Suggs. It's, it's so strange. I mean, you look at the numbers and it's, you know, I'm sure he's not happy with what he's doing offensively right now. And the turnovers are something that's affected the entire team. And it's certainly not just him. I think that's something that I'll uh, smooth over a bit with familiarity. But man, Saturday night, Dan, I'm sitting there watching him. He was clearly gassed. He was just a wrecking ball defensively. He was just destroying fast breaks left and right, destroying sets. And you could tell when he checked out of the game in the second half, like the guy was burnt out. I mean, he had, he had left it all on the floor in Toronto the night before let alone on Saturday night, it doesn't get you the win either night, but I don't think people are appreciating and seeing what he's able to do defensively. That stuff doesn't show up in the box score. And he's like Sonic the Hedgehog at times out there. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's been, he's, he's, he's absolutely, um, he just doesn't stop. He's just got a motor that doesn't stop on that end of the floor. And it's so refreshing to see. No, I mean, it started even all the way back to summer league. And you look at it when he had that crazy 360 block at the rim uh, against, I believe, Golden State, and then goes down and has a big play on the other end. And it just carried over. Uh, he's going to be a guard that, you know, causes disruption 
at the rim uh, in fast break situations throughout his career. He's showing that over a consistent, ba- consistent basis to start this season. And I think from the offensive perspective, my personal opinion right now is that he's really trying to gauge how to play within the offense and adhere to Jamal Mosley's challenge of playing with pace space in the past and really be a distributor and still struggling to figure out, okay, how do I create my own offensive opportunities within that? And I think as that starts to become more natural and he has to think about it a little bit less, uh, he'll start to excel on that end even more. But as you, as we talked about kind of at the beginning uh, of this podcast about traveling and being next to scouts and, you know, other people, he's the one guy. And when I, when I say this, I'm just going to do it to exclusively people outside of the organization, not even with what people here are saying exclusively, whether I'm sitting next to a scout, like I heard this in Miami, heard this in, in a number of places. It's just universally like this kid has the it factor or He's going to be a he's going to be a great one. Uh, this is a guy our team was thinking about tr- trying to trade up for. This is a guy we had at, near the top of our board. These are all things I'm hearing about u- universally when people are talking about Jalen Suggs. And I've yet to hear like one negative from somebody outside of the organization. And trust me, when it comes to scouts outside, like those guys are ready to like kill somebody else's pick. Like, you know, you always almost have to like take what they're saying at times with a grain of salt. And that is not the case with Suggs. It's like this guy's universally beloved. So I really think that Jeff Waltman and John Hammond got themselves a steal with that guy at number five. I mean, there's always an element of like Belichick when you're hearing somebody from the other team pump up your guys, right? Like Dwayne yeah. Casey on Saturday night or on Saturday afternoon. I guess it was Saturday night. Um, he's comparing him to J- he, okay, Jalen Suggs is Jason Kidd, the player, and Dwayne Wade, the interview. Right? I'll uh, take that. <laughs> right? And I'm, when I'm sitting there going, okay, like you don't want to pump. Like we, we know what you're doing, uh, Coach Belichick. But with that said, I think I think then he qualified it right afterwards as you know I'm not trying to put too much pressure on the guy. Dwayne Casey's like one of the good guys across the league. I don't think he's that devious to be pumping up Jalen Suggs right before the game. I think that was very genuine and. You know, to hear that sort of stuff, we know how Jalen the interview would be, but the player is still a complete question mark. And I shouldn't say complete question mark, but, you know, he's, he's still got a whole lot to prove. He's seven games into his NBA career. To hear something like that from Dwayne Casey and the comparison to a player like Jason Kidd, Hall of Famer, obviously, and what he coached, I think that goes a long way as well. Let me ask you about Franz. Like, what are you hearing on that end? Because if anybody has exceeded expectations so far this year it's got to be him I don't know what people necessarily expected but I know they didn't expect this yeah he was one of those guys that especially in summer league when you talk to people in like the analytics world because it it always seems like when you go out to like lunch at summer league you end up sitting next to like somebody's video guy or some like analytics guy for some third party company that has the perfect like software that's engineered to tell you who the next star player is based off of, you know, whatever they've plugged into their Excel spreadsheet. Uh, It's just like, it's that over and over again. And with him, you kept hearing like steal the draft or this guy's just so underrated, going to be a 10 year pro without question does all the little things. And again, like it was the one shocking thing to me is I've talked to so many people and like you expect to hear like one negative thing about these two guys 
and it just did not happen. Like if Franz, you know, when you look at him, I think the thing about him where I worry he would struggle is that coming into the NBA, he does so many things great away from the basketball, whether it was cutting or moving, you know, helping others get involved that when I'm watching him in summer league, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to be in an extremely young backcourt as he's cutting and doing all these things. These guys aren't quite seeing him yet and what he's doing. And I think that played out a little bit in summer league and the preseason where statistically he, he wasn't as impressive, but he's been doing the same thing almost all the way through. Um, now, obviously, his shot making has been a little bit better in the regular season, but I think there's still low hanging fruit out there for Franz because I'm watching a lot of these games and I'm always just paying attention to him move away from the basketball. And a lot of times guys are just a second or two late and that's going to come with time. You know, this is our first go around in Jamal Mosley's system. It's our first time playing with Franz as they start to get more and more familiar with him. He's going to get some of these cutting baskets with ease. And if his shot keeps going in at the rate it's going in, uh, it's going to be a really impressive start because we all see what he brings defensive, defensively night to night. And the other thing about Franz, which we haven't even really seen yet, when you talk to a lot of these other scouts and people like that, they really think his like one of his underrated skills is secondary playmaking. Mm. And right now, because you, the Magic have so many guards and combo guards that you have to get involved, whether it be, you know, Jalen Suggs has to have the ball in his hands at times. You want to get Cole Anthony the ball in his hands at times. R.J. Hampton, you're trying to build up that element of his game. Terrence Ross is very ball dominant. You can't forget about Gary Harris. That they haven't really had a chance to go to that yet with Franz, but I think the secondary evolution, whether it's towards the end of this season or into next season is really going to be putting the ball in his hands and let him create for others. Cause I think he's got a little bit of that keto Turkaloo element to his game where you could go to him at, at times and have him create at that size. Yeah. I, I, you can absolutely see that. I mean, he's, he's so under control and especially, yeah, you get that, that dribble drive and kick right now. It's, it's turning into a spot up jumper. As soon as they start closing out on that, then you have, um, that secondary dribble drive. And, and, but you're right. I mean, I don't think what, what's he at 44%, 43.8% from three right now. I don't think yeah. anybody expected that. Um, and it's not like he's only taken, um, you know, one, one, three a game. I mean, he's getting them up there and he's knocking them down with astonishing regularity. He's been so good um, so far percentage wise. And I think that was, that was the one thing that I sort of expected to kind of lag behind. Um, is the perimeter shooting and the teams that the teams a top 10 three point shooting team right now. So they're defending and they're knocking down threes, um, a whole lot of good sort of foundational pieces yeah. with what we've seen so far. Now you got to close games out uh, and you got to figure out a way to get the bench going. I think one of the things we saw rotation wise, and this speaks to Franz, he's basically, he's playing a majority of the first quarter right now. He's hanging in there as the bench guys sort of filter in, I think trying to be that sort of, calming presence, which is crazy to think about uh, for your rookie, but you're seeing that. How do you get, how do you get Terrence Ross going? Dan? is it a matter of trying to feed him early and sort of get one of those hot T Ross nights and, you know, you knock down two, three threes in the first, when you first get him in there and then, you know, it's going to be a human torch night or, um, you know, is it something that, that kind of has to come more organically, I guess. You know, that, that's a great question, Jay, because we used to talk about it with Steve Clifford last season. It's like when Terrence Ross would miss games, it was like they almost had to change up 
their offensive flow for that second unit because so much was designed specifically for Terrence Ross. And I think as you have a new coach coming in with some new players, uh, it's going to take a minute because you're installing so much of just team offense that you, you haven't been allotted necessarily time to create offensive sets for certain guys. So normally like Steve Clifford had a whole, you know, Terrence Ross package, but that wasn't created overnight. That was built over several seasons of installation and having the same guys. So, you know, Mosley hasn't been afforded that luxury. And he's also playing with a bunch of guys who haven't played all that much time together with Terrence Ross. So I'm with you. I'd probably, you know, come out with one or two very simple things, you know, just a stagger screen, get him, get him involved early on. But the other side of that coin is currently he's commanding so much attention. Like, you know, when the other team is creating their scouting report, they're like, Terrence Ross comes in the game. This is the guy you take away to make things uh, harder and perhaps mentally take him out of the game a little bit. So it's a little bit of that uh, conflicting back and forth. We saw, you know, I've seen in practices and with him uh, at times, he's gotten better at driving to the rim this year. So I I just want to put him in more of those opportunities and see what we have because we all know if he can get going and he gets going early, he can completely win you a game. And that's exactly what happened in New York where, you know, he scores 22 points in the fourth quarter and just annihilates – and mentally exhausts the other team because it's like they're up in him and there's nothing you can do, you know. So I'm with, I'm with you. They, they need to figure out a way to get him going, run a few plays early, and, and hope uh, he flips the torch switch on. I think that's an interesting sort of dilemma that Jamal Mosley's dealing with right now is, you know, you saw on Saturday night at the end of the game, I don't know if you want to call it still within reach. Uh, it was less than 20 with, what, five minutes left something like that. And you start to make the bench moves and, and, you know, people on Twitter are saying, you know, why are you go, why are you putting RJ back in? And why is Michael Mulder playing right now? Um, This game's still within reach. And I'm sitting there going, you know, Jamal Mosley has both short-term wins and long-term wins that he needs to look at right now. And things like immediately putting in a package for Terrence Ross to get him going versus laying it, laying the foundation with a more team oriented playbook. You know, those are things that he has to weigh right now. What's going to help win tomorrow night or tonight or Wednesday night is very important. What's going to help this team in the long run? What's going to help each guy develop individually and collectively is what's most important. So I do think there is, you know, there's, there's, there's a little bit of a different priority list for Jamal Mosley and his, and his coaching staff right now um, than fans might have, you know, fans might want right now and, and, and get it done immediately, but this is a long-term thing. I think, I think you can sort of see that back and forth happening because, you know, yes, it's great to go out there and exhaust all of your resources to try to win a game in October. But the, the, the bottom line is it's a marathon, not a sprint. And there's still a whole lot of work to be done, especially with that playbook. You know, it's really funny because you have certain fans that like will hammer a coach for that. And then almost like the same group of people will hammer Tom Thibodeau when uh, his group is uh, up, you know, big at Amway Center for that night. And he's still playing starters with like three minutes left in a game that they completely have control over. So it's like coaching is in no win situation in that part. Like, you you know, whether you get the the coach who's like really up on analytics and he's like, you know what, we're on the second night of a back to back in October, mind you, maybe it's not the, the best time to keep the 
the foot on the gas. Well, and, and the and the funny part is the group that came in, they rattled off an 11-2 run. They're <laughs> racing all over the floor playing defense, and that's something you know, that you weren't getting at that point. And, like, it was clear watching at that point that the guys were gassed. They were like, done. You know? And those fresh legs made a difference. So he not only made the right coaching call for the long term, but in my opinion, it worked out for the for the short term, too, because there was only so much more you were going to get out of those guys. And it, it's just funny because you see that like on the Tibbs side of the conversation where these, you know, veteran coaches who just, you know, can't can't get away from playing traditional bigs and traditional lineups and and, you know, roll the minutes up into the 30s. They get hammered for the opposite. So it, it's always funny to see the different fan bases when they just have that tunnel vision on something, uh, you know, come into play. Um, let's talk about Cole. He's been just out of his mind um i pulled if you just look at the re- rebounding per game numbers he's at 7.4 that's 46 in the league let's here's a couple guys he's out rebounding so far this year just, just kind of a random list Dwayne deadman reiner ingram kevin love hassan whiteside jimmy butler and oh down here 61st aaron gordon he is he is out rebounding aaron gordon by 1.1 rebounds per game dan savage i don't i just I just Scrolled down to 61 and Eric was sitting there. It's a completely randomized, <laughs> randomized you, list. Um, the rebounds Thanks, have Denver. been good. <laughs> he's, he's been so good um, oh, rebounding, God. and we knew he was going to do that. But you mentioned shooting off the bounce. That's been outstanding. And he's been really efficient, too. And obviously, they need him to carry the scoring load. But you would think, you know, at this point, especially with all the youth around him, it wouldn't be very efficient. And he's been not only very efficient, he's been really good creating for his teammates. And then you throw in the scoring punch and the rebounding as well. I mean, he's, he's playing, he's playing like one of the better guards in the Eastern conference. No, no question. And just explain to me how he's rebounding at that rate. The magic are playing two bigs. And one of their big problems right now is, is rebounding. Yes, I know. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> figure, figure that one out for me. Cause that's what I've just spent the last like two hours as I was writing my preview, trying to figure out how to explain that. Well, one and, like, thing and say, mind you over that stretch, Mo Bamba set a career high for rebounds in one, one of those games. One thing I'll say, Dan, is the, the big issue to me is the offensive rebounds. And yeah. a lot of that is because the, the team defense is, is struggled at times, especially in transition. You got one guy peeling off and, you know, it's scramble D and all of a sudden you got a missed layup and an easy offensive rebound and put back. Like, I think it's, it all sort of interconnects, you know? Yeah, no, but no question. It's just one of the mind boggling things where Cole Anthony could be rebounding at that rate. Mo Bamba set a career high for rebounds in a game and you got two bigs out there and somehow it's been an issue in, in first half of some of these games, but yet in the first half, the starters are playing with the highest net rating right. of any lineup. So <laughs> try to figure that all out <laughs> but like you said Cole is just I think it, it's a it speaks to his work ethic you know this is a guy who not only came into summer league as a second year player which you would expect but like committed himself to it so the work he put in pre-summer league then he's there and he's going through every practice and going through it hard like this isn't a guy who like all right, I know I'm a second-year guy. I'm going to be the star of the Summer League show. I'm going to go through about half the practices, you know, play in two games and then call it quits. Like, we've seen that throughout the league and throughout NBA history. He's a guy who was, like, playing it as hard as a guy who was trying to earn, like, a G League, you know, contract or invite to camp. 
And, you know, he's dunking, he's doing everything. He's being an extension of the coach. He's trying to help other young guys out, whether it was Jalen or Franz. And that was the start to Cole Anthony's uh, offseason. And we just saw it carry over, whether it was his work in training camp, his offseason workout routine. And so I think it was only fitting that as the season started, that's when his shooting rhythm really started to kick in. And we're seeing that right now, the way he's knocking down threes, the way he's hitting them off the bounce, uh, you know, over the above the break, he's knocking down, you know, 45.7% of them. He's just, he's just doing it all uh, shooting right now. And that's making a big difference why the Magic are in a lot of these games. It's the reason they won uh, the Knicks game. In addition to Terrence Ross was Cole Anthony's first half was just sensational. So if he could keep that up, I think that, you know, the Magic are going to figure out some of the other areas where they're struggling at from a team perspective, and they're going to be a lot more competitive uh, as the season unfolds. Yeah, I mean, you it's no coincidence that the game, the one win was the one where you got bench help when it, when it counted. Right. I mean, they found something with the starters. I was, I wasn't sure you were going to be able to play Mo Bamba and Wendell Carter Jr. together (laughs) night in and night out. Um, That clearly has not been an issue. I mean, the starters are defending very, very well and playing very, very well. Um, It's just an issue with everybody else. (laughs) It's time to Mo Mosley to figure it out. And, um, that's why he makes the big bucks, but I do think getting bodies back. I mean, obviously you want to fix the bench. How about more good players? Like that sounds like a, a good way to fix the bench issue. You know, uh, if, you, if you get Terrence, if you, you know, when you eventually get even an each want more who could help stabilize totally. a, a, a second unit or a Michael Carter Williams, who will give you something else both defensively and on the glass Agreed. or when Markel Fultz, Jonathan Isaac, these are guys that you're considering, you know, cornerstone pieces that are currently just absent right now. Not only does their return help, but it also elevates the level of player which you're putting on the floor and strengthening, you know, both guys that are then sliding back to the bench and fortifying the bench. So there's there's all those elements to it uh, that, you know, have extensions. So I think, you know, getting Chuma Okiki back is a start. And then as those other guys start to trickle back in over the course of the season, I think that'll alleviate a lot of the bench issues uh, that perhaps we're seeing right now. No, I agree. And Chuma, you know, goes back to the thing we were talking about with Franz. I mean, Chuma does a lot of things well, but there is some, you know, you can run some offense through him for sure. Um, He's not just going to be a floor spacer on the offensive end. So I think you get some secondary playmaking there as well. Um, Some different pick and pop, pick and roll action with him. And I think it'll help on that end. And we know it'll certainly help on the defensive end. Um, All right. We've, I think we've exhausted our basketball talk. I think it's time to talk Browns and Bengals. Um, oh, goodness. I spent the better part of last night arguing with people that I don't know, but I follow on Twitter and follow me on Twitter about Baker Mayfield. I'm completely out on him currently. I think sit him down the rest of the year, make him have surgery, sign him to a nice team-friendly deal, and we'll try it again next year. I think he's hurt. I think it's not um, – I think the offense is not functioning the way it needs to. And I think we probably, we probably had a little too high expectation. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe the expectations were fine. It's four. They're four and four. The season's not over yet, but I am in Brown's misery. Meanwhile, you guys were flying as high as Bengal fans ever could possibly fly heading into yesterday's game against the New York jets. You give up 17 fourth quarter points and fall to something called Mike white. 
<laughs> Jets. He threw 405 yards and three touchdowns, Dan. How did it happen? You know how many times over the course of the Bengals timeline that I've coincided with it, that like a rookie quarterback that nobody's ever seen before gets like his first start and just absolutely destroys the Bengals. I mean, they started Brett Favre's career, uh, you know, for the first time. And there's been countless others since that have fallen this trajectory. And I'm too... It, it would bring me such a level of misery that I'm too, I just can't even look it up because it just hurts so bad. And I spent the better part of yesterday uh, creating tweets about NFL officiating and then, and then just leaving my drafts because I'm just like, this isn't going to help anybody. You're a smart man. <laughs> but the NFL has this problem where they initiate a rule and then eventually some crew within their system decides to like over follow these things to the law and which this didn't even happen in this case, but they do this. And then it gets so far away from the spirit of the rule that then they have to end up removing the rule itself later on. And that happened with the pass interference. And then you're looking at it, a play last night where Mike Hilton's head is so below Michael Carter's waist as he's making the tackle. And then Michael Carter actually lowers his helmet and uses the helmet as an initiator to hit Mike Hilton. And yet a penalty is called on Mike Hilton. So in my, by from reading the letter of the law, if you took it extremely literally, it would have been a foul on both players and it offset and you'd replay the down, which would have been stupid anyway, but all right, whatever, let, you know, go that route. But they actually called on the defensive player and let it be, I'm not going to call it the deciding factor in the game, but it was the deciding factor that the game was over. Mm. So essentially officials have inserted themselves in controlling the outcome of the game. And I think you can only do that with a call that is overly obvious, right? You don't do that with, with calls that are, that are borderline. Um, and that's where the NFL officiating has gotten themselves into trouble over and over again. And you see it happening with this helmet to helmet and some of the roughing penalties that they've been, that they've been calling throughout the course of the year, not just in the Bengals game. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of when the NBA had that rule about delay games where the ball would come out. And then it became like so absurdly ridiculous that players are dodging the basketball because they were so afraid, like, oh, my God, if we touch this ball by some accident or actually even help the game go faster, we're going to be penalized. And it's just like you get some of these crews that just take it so literally, forget the spirit of the thing, and then they just get so absurd with it. Like, is common sense that so far gone? Like, these officiating crews are fighting against robotics taking over over the calling of the game, yet they remove common sense and make themselves more like robots. It, it takes me down like a, a, you know, a whole different rabbit hole. Well, <clears throat> the targeting aspect of it is it's always so selective, right? Because I always see, for instance, if a ball carrier is running the ball and a defender puts his helmet on the ball and pops yeah. it out, right? That's just a great play. He put, oh. his, he put his crown right on the ball. That's what we He did want. as he was coached. He did as he was coached. But if he misses and he, hits, and he hits right here, well, then it's targeting and it's spearing and all that stuff. Not to mention the fact that, you know, plays like I think the one you're referring to, I think I saw it, you know, the, the, the pad level changes so quickly. 
um, that you could be, you know, set up for a perfect target. And then if the ball carrier goes low, then all of a sudden he's changing, he's changing right in front of you. Like, I don't know how you're supposed to adjust to that. And the third part of it is what you mentioned. I mean, that was, wasn't that the Trent Richardson rule? Didn't they put that rule in for ball carriers not to be able to do that, use their helmet as a weapon for the, in the exact same spirit, but it's just selective. And it's, it seems like if you are, um, it seems like if it's, it's all about optics. Like if it looks like it, then they're going to call it no matter what. And they never actually slow down and consider like, what is the defender supposed to do in that instance? I understand why we have the rules, but um, you're right. I mean, it's, it's kind of just, I mean, it's all subjective, but I feel like with that one, especially in that moment, like you better be a hundred percent sure that you're making the right call. And you see it with some of the rough in the passer rules as well. Um, you know, finishing the tackle or whatever, you know, driving the guy to the ground. Isn't that what tackling is? Isn't tackling putting somebody on the ground? And yet if you do it too hard because it's a quarterback, it's a penalty. I mean, it's just nuts. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that should just be common sense that when you look at it, you go, okay, that's this thing. Like if right. a guy picks up a quarterback and literally lifts him off the ground and does something so egregious, like, you know, whatever, if a player goes and puts all his weight and is intentionally, you know, you could see with your eyes trying to injure and impair the quarterback. Sure. Take that stuff out of the game. But if a guy makes a nice tackle and his body weight slides over the quarterback due to momentum are we really calling a penalty there like it's just getting so absurd with like following the literal literal aspects of the law and losing the common sense uh, of the game and the funny part is is like the best crews the crews who get chosen for playoff games and ultimately you know the super bowls they're all ones that apply common sense and don't apply these rules to every little random situation. Like they have the ability to do that. And the NFL recognizes that. Like what happened to like swallow the whistle or let them play, you know, it, the, the great ones, the great officials have the ability to do that. The bad ones don't. We saw some of the bad officiating yesterday and uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but it, it happens to every team in one way or another over the course of the year. And the goal is, especially when you're playing bad teams like the Bengals were yesterday, is don't even put yourself in a situation where that where it comes down to that. You're up 11 with seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter of the Jets, and you're going to lose that game. That's that's absurd. Well, and that's what you know. That's the root, I guess, of my argument with everybody yesterday was, you know, Baker Mayfield comes back from injury. He wasn't the reason they lost the game in the second half. He There were drops, there were penalties, and there's a big Jarvis Landry fumble. But Jarvis Landry typically doesn't drop the ball. Jarvis no. Landry typically doesn't fumble the ball. He's about as shorthanded as you get. And what happens typically is this Browns offense, it's especially since he separated his shoulder again, is giving you about 10 or 14 points a game. Like the offense is completely anemic. So what I'm sitting there saying is, well, we scored three points at halftime. It, how about we have a quarterback who doesn't put us in the situation where one drop ends the game against a Pittsburgh team that I don't think is particularly good, even though they've won three in a row, we've got a point differential of minus 10. They need a quarterback who wins games like that, who has a creates a margin of error. And again, I'm not saying we got to cut Baker Mayfield right now. What I'm saying is he's clearly not right. The playbook is very clearly limited. And I would rather go into next week's huge game against the Cincinnati Bengals with Case Keaton as my starting quarterback, because I think he's healthy. You can run rollouts. You can do all sorts of different stuff with him because you're not scared of his shoulders separating for the third freaking time this year. 
Uh, and I love Baker and I love his heart, but he is, I think he's hurting the team right now. And there we go. That's my rant. I'm not going to ask. No, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good rant, Jake. And I think that the tough part about it is the stage at which he's hitting in his career. Um, obviously, if Baker was healthy, you'd love to have him out there. But the Browns team is also going to have a tough decision where, you know, this is a salary cap era of the, the NFL. And you can only pay, uh, you know, players so much money. And once you tie up a certain amount of money in a quarterback, you start having to pull away other aspects of the team. You know, unless your quarterback's Tom Brady, who's so good and is actually willing to take a discount to help elevate some of those other elements, you pay Baker Mayfield $30 million. I'm sorry, he's not going to be equipped with the same amount of weapons that he has now. And if that's the case, is he a good enough quarterback that it doesn't matter if either your offensive line or your defensive line or some of those elements aren't as good because he's going to carry the rest of it. And I'm not sure to this point in his career, he's shown that yet. And it's going to be a tough decision because he's shown flashes. That's for sure. But has he shown it at a consistent enough level to warrant the kind of payday he perhaps may command? He's the 10th or 11th best quarterback in the conference. And I'm not sure if that's good enough for $30 million. Now, with that said, you can get him for 25 or whatever, then, you know, I don't think we're going to move on without Baker Mayfield. But like you said, I'm not sure he's good enough to elevate a team, especially one that doesn't have Jadavion Clowney and Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. I mean, we've got a lot of money tied into kind of, you know, luxuries, uh, mm -hmm. basically on the roster. And if you could, if you can only get it to four and four midway through the season with all those guys and what is going to happen, like you said, uh, when you've got undrafted free agents and guys yeah. like that plugging in those holes, um, it's, <laughs> just, just look across Ohio at Andy Dalton, who, you know, is kind of like the definition of mediocrity at the, at the quarterback position. Like, you know, during his peak, he wasn't great, but he wasn't certainly bad either. But when on his rookie deal, those Bengals teams went to like five straight playoff berths because they were able to surround him with talent. But as soon as his contract elevated to a bit of that higher peak value and they had to, you know, maybe not make some of the acquisitions they would have were he to still be on that rookie deal, uh, you know, no playoff berths. Marvin Lewis gets fired and, uh, you know, they're moving on. So it's one of those things. It's it's really it's really a tough decision to make because it's not like, oh, Baker's bad, but is he good enough to where he can get paid highly because you're in a salary cap environment? where he can elevate the other pieces. He's Andy Dalton. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so accurate. He's shorter, brunette, Andy Dalton. A little more swag. A little more swag, more commercials. So that's good. A little more, a little more change in the pocket. All right, fun as always. The no prep pod. He's Dan Savage, at Dan underscore Savage on Twitter. Read all of his stuff on OrlandoMagic.com. Dan, thanks. appreciate it. I appreciate the invite. We will uh, we'll tweet uh, some sort of a gentleman's wager for this weekend. I'll tweet at you. All right. We'll have to do something. It can't be profile pick uh, related because I'm already tied up there, apparently. No, yeah, that is that is money. I would never mess with something like that. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll do lunch or something like that. Dan Savage, appreciate it, man. Thanks, as always. All right. I'm Jake Chapman. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Jake Chapman. Oh, and we're back next week with another edition of the Mostly Magic Podcast. Have a great week, everybody.